we'll say good morning to the children. And I'm going to very carefully take Lois Ann's computer off the stand and see if I can turn around so that you can see that all four candles are, yes, there we go, are being lighted for the Advent wreath. So we only get to see that once a year to have all of those candles going. And it seems like a long time ago since we had that first candle that was lighted. And that was the candle for hope, if you remember. And then I don't know that I mentioned the next candle is actually a candle for faith. And I have to write this down because otherwise I get confused too. And on that Sunday, we talked about St. Nicholas, the very generous bishop who gave money in a secret kind of way so that no one would know what he was doing. And then the third candle is for the shepherds and its joy. And we talked about St. Lucy, Santa Lucia, whose day was the next day. And how uh, in places like Norway and Sweden, yeah, a little dangerous, might have candles in their hair and bring treats to their parents in bed. And now today we have our final candle, which is a candle of peace. And that was what was mentioned to us at the very end of our lesson from the Hebrew Bible. You heard the word peace. And also today I'm going to mention to you another remarkable woman because her commemoration is tomorrow. And that is Catherine von Bora. And lots of times we know her better as sisters and became a sister herself. And then when the nuns at the convent heard more about Luther's teaching, he, uh, uh, Luther was doing a lot of teaching at that time, and convents and monasteries were closing. So um, Catherine left, left the convent, and in those days it was very difficult for a woman who wasn't in the convent if she didn't have a husband. And so Martin Luther was looking around to find husbands for these sisters, these nuns. But Catherine said one day, well, I wouldn't mind Dr. Luther himself. And he said, oh, really? Well, okay. It's not like they had the most wonderful romantic meeting, but over the course of their marriage, they truly came to deeply, deeply love one another and help one another. And they had six children. And then because of deaths in the family, they took in four more nieces and nephews. And Katie ran this big Augustinian monastery and there were always students and kids and theologians sitting around for supper, 10, 12, 14 people at the table, and Katie did all of that. So tomorrow is her commemoration as a renewer of the church. So we're gonna talk about some remarkable women today, but we also wanna remember Catherine von Bora Luther as someone who is very special. I hope that you got your um, children's packets to look at because we're going to be talking about the Magnificat, the, the Song of Mary. And I think in your packet, you have kind of a word search for, and holy is his name. That's from Mary's song. And I looked at that word search and it was late last night and I thought, this is too hard. So I hope you do well with your word search. Have, have you given it a try? Not yet, okay, very good, very good. Let's just have a word of prayer together to end the children's sermon on this last Sunday of Advent. 
Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for all you have done for us. We give you thanks for your servants through history, people like St. Lucy, Catherine von Bora Luther, and for your most special and first disciple, the Lord's Blessed Mother Mary. Help us to live as her song tells us to live, and be with us now as we go towards Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to celebrate your birth in the flesh on earth. All of this we ask in your precious name. Amen. I never can keep all those Advent candles straight. I'm sorry, I should have them memorized now after about 70 years, but they still confuse me. And it's a nice thing. I'm not sure how liturgical that is, but that is our tradition, that there's a candle for each thought uh, during, during Advent. So may grace and peace be with you all. The grace to behold the coming of the light and the peace to know that all shall be well. A bit of background for today's canticle, as this song and others like it are known. Mary has heard the Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel, and it's before today's Gospel lesson. But a close reading of Luke indicates that after the Annunciation of the Angel to Mary, Mary wasted very little time, but set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. These two remarkable women have a joyous exchange regarding the children whom they are carrying. And as soon as the aged Elizabeth speaks of the child within her, who will be named John, and by the way, that name means God is gracious. As soon as she speaks of that child leaping for joy at the sound of Mary's voice, Mary replies with a hymn of praise. And this is known to us as the Magnificat from the first word of Mary's song in Latin, Magnificat anima mei, magnify soul my. So this has become a regular part of the evening liturgy in Roman Catholic traditions, in Episcopalian traditions, Lutheran traditions, and probably some others. It's been set to a huge variety of glorious, gorgeous music too. You've probably heard some of them. And as beautiful as these settings are, and as joyous, we are so apt to forget the situation, really, in which our Lord's Blessed Mother had found herself. A long time ago, when I was in high school, okay, a really long time ago, when we said if a girl was in trouble, everybody knew exactly what we meant. So it was for Mary upon hearing the news of the angel, except besides just being in trouble, the penalty in those times for being with child without a husband could have been incredibly severe. Maybe very little time elapsed between Mary being visited by the angel and Joseph being visited by an angel in a dream, which we hear about in the Gospel of Matthew. We don't know the timing, but in the midst of this situation, which could have imperiled Mary's life, if not certainly her status in the community, our Lord's Blessed Mother is able to sing a hymn of praise. And as an aside, which could actually be a whole sermon, I would lift up Mary's song for any of you in those times of your life 
when you are in deep sadness, utterly shredded with grief, and you have no words of your own to pray. That's been my experience in my life. In those dark, dark, grief-filled times, please, if you will, remember Mary's song of praise for those inevitable times when the darkness seems overwhelming. And again, we seem to have no words of our own to pray. So Mary has her song with her kinswoman, Elizabeth. And after the song, Luke comments simply, it's the last verse after today's gospel lesson, and Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. This entire episode in today's gospel is called The Visitation, which is pretty intuitive since it's the visit of Mary to Elizabeth, the visitation, and that is always observed in our calendar on May 31st. So what Luke doesn't bother to tell us, probably because at that time everybody already knew it, is that this beautiful song of our Lord's Blessed Mother has a precedent from the Hebrew Bible. We talked about that a little bit this week in Bible study. Many of us remember from Sunday school the story of Samuel the prophet and how his mother, Hannah, had prayed for years for the birth of a child. And eventually, of course, Hannah has that child, names him Samuel, and she keeps her promise to lend him to the Lord as long as he lives. And Hannah brings Samuel to Eli, the aged priest. Do you remember this from Sunday school? And after she leaves Samuel with Eli, Samuel being a little boy, maybe this was just shortly after he had been weaned, after leaving her little boy to the Lord, Hannah prays. And Hannah's prayer, which we read in the first chapter of First Samuel, goes like this, my heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. His mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. I never read that chapter in 1 Samuel. And by the way, it's the second chapter. I never read that until I was in seminary and it was assigned to us. And when I read it, I thought to myself, this really sounds a lot like Mary's Magnificat. You can go home and read it for yourself. I wasn't the first person to notice that. So here we have this stunning circumstance. We have our Lord's blessed mother drawing on the words of a woman who waited years to have a child, drawing on those words to paraphrase her own song of thanksgiving when she herself could have been in grave peril, but instead cho chose to rejoice and give thanks. And as I said last, last Wednesday in Bible study, our Lord's blessed mother knew her scriptures. She's quoting. You know, at that time, I've been told that kids needed, first of all, to memorize the entire first five books of Moses. And then if they did okay with that, they went on memorizing the entire Hebrew Bible. Our Lord's blessed mother obviously had done exactly that. Our Lord's Blessed Mother knew her scripture, and when she could have been filled with fear and even resentment, resistance, and retreat at having been put into such a tenuous situation, instead, Mary sings a song of thanksgiving. Martin Luther, in his comment on the Magnificat, he wrote an entire commentary, says this. Luther says, Mary begins with herself and sings what God has done for her. Thus, she teaches us a twofold lesson. First, every one of us should pay attention to what God has done for us, 
rather than to all the works God does for others. For no one will be saved by what God does for another, but only by what God does to you. And when St. Peter asked about John, what about this man? Remember that story? Christ answered him by saying, what is that to you? Follow me. In the second place, Mary teaches us that everyone should strive to be foremost in praising God by showing forth the works God has done to them, and then by praising God for the works God has done to others. Mary confesses that the foremost work God did for her was that God regarded her, which, Luther says, is the greatest indeed of all God's works on which the rest depend and upon which they will all be derived. You know, we have this primal, basic survival need to be seen, to be regarded. Developmentally, it's so incredibly appropriate, and you can see it in infants as they gaze into the eyes of their caregiver. That's what we're talking about. God has regarded us as God regarded the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's no wonder that our Lord's Blessed Mother has sometimes been called the first disciple. In addition to Mary's song being an outpouring of joy, it is also a pronouncement that the baby she carries is going to turn the world upside down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran theologian who was jailed and then hanged by the Nazis because of his participation in the resistance. You probably know the story. Bonhoeffer wrote that the Magnificat was the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Bonhoeffer is right, of course, if we take seriously the words of this canticle. In fact, just this week, just in time for the sermon uh, from the Christian Century, a magazine to which some of you may subscribe, there was an article that was titled, Miriam of Nazareth Still Sings. And the article said this, in the 1970s, the government of Argentina banned all public recitations of the Magnificat after the mothers of the Playa de Mayo, whose children had been disappeared, we remember that story, those mothers published it as a manifesto of nonviolent resistance to the ruling military junta. Guatemala did the same thing in the 1980s. Generations earlier, British authorities in the East India Company excised the Magnificat from the Vespers evening prayer. Mary's fiery speech, this author says, Mary's fiery speech at the beginning of Luke's gospel may be the appointed canticle for Vespers, but it has also emboldened the colonized to resist their oppressors and the traumatized poor to claim for themselves God's preferential love. In our hymnal, we have a paraphrase of the Magnificat called the Canticle of the Turning. Maybe you have sung it here. The first verse goes like this. My soul cries out with a joyful shout that the God of my heart is great, and my spirit sings of the wondrous things that you bring to the ones who wait. You fixed your sight on your servant's plight, and my weakness you did not spurn. So from east to west shall my name be blessed. Could the world be about to turn? My heart shall sing of the day you bring. Let the fires of your justice burn. Wipe away all tears, 
for the dawn draws near and the world is about to turn. The dawn draws near. Do you think the world is about to turn? One theologian to whom I have been listening calls this, our age, an axial age. And he's describing about how every 200 years or so, there are huge changes and things turn over like the pond water in the spring. Other theologians to whom I've been listening lately talk about how creation is groaning or humankind is writhing. And the overarching question is, is that writhing, is that, is that sense, the restlessness of impending death or the birth pangs of a new world. The one who said, behold, I make all things new, may have plans for us. Do you think so? Do you think so? Do you think it may be incumbent upon us as missionary disciples of the gospel to change, to change ahead of the changing world it's about to turn. Why don't people change? Well, first of all, I want to change and then I don't. I suppose it might be the same for you. When we are mentally contemplating change, there can be tremendous ambivalence and anxiety that starts up. But we can't get frozen there. Max Planck, Max Planck, one of my favorite physicists. No, I don't understand what he writes, but I love some of what he says. He was one of the most prominent physicists of the last century, and here's what he said. I love this. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather it triumphs because its opponents eventually die, and a new generation grows up that is familiar with that scientific truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I, whether it's a scientific truth or truth with a capital T, I would like to do something to advance the truth other than through my demise. How about you? Surely there is something that we can do to advance change in our lives rather than to impede it. Yes, the world is about to turn, and resistance, resistance is normal. People are resentful resistive and retreating and making people feel bad that's not going to help them change when you feel unacceptable it's difficult to change however the experience of being accepted as you are and may i add the experience perhaps of knowing that god has seen you has regarded you that experience of being accepted as you are facilitates the willingness to change. The experience of being accepted as you are, not as you think you ought to be, or worse yet, what you think other people think you ought to be, but accepted as you are by the one who knew you before you were formed, by the one who sent a little baby into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God has regarded us as God regarded Mary, and that is indeed the greatest of God's work, as Luther said. Does that give us some encouragement? Does that impart a sense of freedom? Does that help reduce resentment, resistance, and retreat? 
as we look at the self-giving love we hear about every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, as we experience the word of life in the scriptures and the bread of life in Holy Communion, does that change our point of view and does it change how we think about change? Again, Max Planck said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. How shall it be for us who are claimed by Jesus? Shall we participate in bringing forth a new world so that the kingdom might come on earth as we pray every Sunday? Shall God's will be done here as it is in heaven? There is no work that we can do, we know, to procure our salvation, but there are tremendous things, I believe, that we can do to bring about sanctification, to be called, enlightened, and sanctified in and through the Holy Spirit, to put on Christ, as our Methodist friends talk about so often. We can respond to the unspeakable gift we have been given, just as Mary did. And we, too, can respond as Mary did. Behold, the servant of the Lord. These have been challenging, challenging times, no question. And people have complained loudly about being inconvenienced while others are sick and dying. While we stand by and support so many people who have endangered themselves on behalf of others, people in healthcare, people in law enforcement, teachers, workers that we call essential, but we pay them as though they were disposable. While we stand by and pray for those people who have lost loved ones, we also need to maintain perspective during these trying times and sing the Lord's song in this foreign land, which we have moved the last two years. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that theologian I mentioned earlier, was in jail and facing execution for his participation in the resistance against the Nazis. Members of his extended family and friends had been imprisoned and sent to concentration camps if they had not been able to get to Switzerland. In the midst of all of this, while Germany was under bombardment, Bonhoeffer wrote from jail to his parents on December 17, 1943. And here's what he wrote maintaining perspective. He wrote, on Christmas Eve, I shall be thinking of you all very much. And I want you to believe that I too shall have a few hours of joy and that I am not allowing my troubles to get the better of me. It will certainly be a quiet Christmas for everybody. And the children will look back on it for a long time afterwards. But for the first time, perhaps, many will learn the true meaning of Christmas, maintaining perspective. We have considered Catherine von Bora and the remarkable aged Elizabeth and our Lord's blessed mother, three remarkable women. Let's think of one more remarkable woman, Julian of Norwich, who was an English mystic in the 1300s. She was born in 1342 and in 1347, the first ships arrived in Sicily, carrying the Black Death to Europe. The Hundred Years' War, the Hundred Years' War between France and England had begun 10 years earlier. The center of Western Christianity was crumbling as multiple candidates for Pope jockeyed for power, and the papacy itself was in exile in France. Julian herself became gravely, gravely ill for days, so ill that her mother attempted to close Julian's eyes, thinking that Julian had died. 
When she recovered, Julian wrote her book, the first written in English by a woman, and the book was called Revelations of Divine Love. Revelations of Divine Love in the Midst of the Black Death. And we talk about pandemic fatigue. We'll come back to Julian later. This Magnificat sung by our Lord's Blessed Mother is a call to action for our spirits too, to rejoice in God our Savior and for remembering the promises that have been made to us in our baptism, just as Mary remembered the promises made to Abraham. As we treasure the traditions that have been given to us in and through the church, we also look forward, knowing the one who is able to strengthen us according to the gospel. In the whole Christian church, in our denomination, and in our congregation, we need to look about us and with the help of the Holy Spirit, see what God is already doing in the world and join in. And you have done some of that, much of that already. Our Lord's Blessed Mother and her kinswoman Elizabeth participated in their very beings in fulfilling the word and will of God moving forward in the promise that had been made to their ancestors, to Abraham and to his children forever. God is able to strengthen us as well, according to the gospel. We are called to participate in that mystery that was kept secret for long ages, as it says in Hebrews, and according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. We need not shrink back from life we need not succumb to resentment, resistance, and retreat. As we say so often in therapy sessions, and really as we paraphrase it every Sunday during confession, don't make the future the slave of the past. We need to be aware, but we don't need to be anxious. Remember? As the Apostle Peter said, casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. As we sing the song sung by our Lord's Blessed Mother, may we together move forward into the vision of that upward call in Christ Jesus. May we be of good courage, sisters and brothers. Remember Julian, that Englishwoman mystic who lived during the time of the Black Death, the Hundred Years War, the disintegration of the papacy, and who lay close to death for days. Here's a small part of what Julian wrote to us. Julian says, he said not, thou shalt not be tempted. He said not, thou shalt not be travailed. He said not, thou shalt not be diseased. But he said, thou shalt not be overcome. and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Sisters and brothers, siblings in Christ, the dawn draws nigh, the morning light is breaking, the darkness disappears. Magnify the Lord. Thanks be to God.